do we have the natural right, the right given to us by God to to autonomy, to protection of bodily integrity and that of our child? Or does the state have the right to take that from us and tell us what we have to do with our bodies and the bodies of our minor children? So this is really the crux of the whole thing. That's what we're fighting for. We are fighting literally for the right to have dominion over our own bodies and and be able to protect our children. Welcome to the 100 Year Lifestyle Podcast, dedicated to you and your loved ones living at 100% for 100 years and beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Plaster. All right. Welcome, everybody, to our webinar today. Uh, Dr. Eric Plaster here with our special guest, longtime uh, hero of mine, warrior. I don't know where I would be, how my life would be different without you, Barbara. And I know there's probably so many people that could say that. Uh, So welcome to our 100-Year Lifestyle training call webinar. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, I'm always happy to talk with the chiropractors. They played a big role in our history, actually, uh, in MBIC's history since we were founded in 1982 by parents of DPT vaccinated children. Um, we we were fortunate enough to meet up in 1993 with the late Dr. Larry Webster, who founded the International Pediatric Chiropractic Association, and um, it was a a time we'd been we'd been doing this work for well let's see 82 uh, more than a decade. Uh, and were pretty demoralized at that point because the power of the government had begun to be thrown against us after we had uh, passed, worked on the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 1986 and realized that we had been betrayed, being betrayed by government and industry and the medical trade that we had been at the table with to create that law. Uh, and uh, it was Larry Webster who held out his hand to us uh, after I gave a small, uh, I gave a little speech at a, 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 a gathering of chiropractors in McLean, Virginia, in a schoolroom. Um, and it was uh, Pat and Mike McLean, Arnold Bernier, uh, Sid, uh, Sid, uh, Sigafus. Williams, yeah. Sigafus. Oh, and, yeah. And, um, and also Larry, and oh gosh, Eddie Cohen, I think, was there. And anyway, they uh, I gave this little fifteen minute talk because Kathy and I, the co founder, Kathy Williams and I, we were going to shut down MVIC because we were out of money, we were being just blasted from every corner, and uh, we were pretty we were pretty demoralized. And Larry came up to me after that little talk, and he goes, Barbara. He says, I want you to come and talk to 200 chiropractors in Boston uh, from Canada and the United States. And I said, well, we're going to shut the organization down. And he goes, you can't do that. He goes, come talk to our chiropractors. Well, I didn't really know anything about chiropractic. I mean, I knew that they worked on backs. But I thought, if I stand up in front of all these chiropractors, they're going to think I'm crazy because I'm basically talking about vaccine risks and I'm talking about, you know, the fact that, that a lot of kids have been hurt. Um, and he says, no, I, I, I see, he's I'll pay for, we'll pay for your way. We'll pay your way up there. So I said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll come do that. And I did, I went and it was the first really major 
uh, like a really major speech I'd given in front of a large group of people. And I remember speaking, telling, saying, well, I'm just going to tell them the truth of as I know it and I just don't care. And they all just sat there staring at me. And afterwards, everyone got up and gave me a standing ovation. And Larry said, okay, lock the doors. I want you guys to get out your wallets and I want you to, I want you to line up. I'm going to put Barbara at the back of the room and I want you to give her a reason to not close this organization. And they gave us, I think, almost $8,000 that day. This was in 1993. That was a lot of money. And I called Kathy from the hotel. I said, we're not closing this organization. I said, if 200 chiropractors believe in this work and they work with patients and they understand this, they understand this because they've been fighting for more than 100 years. I, I had learned it, talking to them that, you know, everything you would face is a profession. Uh, Didi Umber, BJ, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Didi uh, Palmer and BJ Palmer. Um, and so I said, we're not closing. We're going to keep on going. And uh, it was a really a, a, quite a moment in our history. And from that point on, I did do a lot of speaking in the 1990s to chiropractors at chiropractic conferences about this issue. And it really was my speaking in the chiropractic conferences that gave me a lot of confidence to go and do the debates with doctors. I've debated more doctors on television than any other American. And I did that mostly in the 1990s and the early 2000s before they decided that they didn't want my voice in the public square. Um, so I, I feel very close to the chiropractic community and very grateful to the chiropractic community for giving us that support in those early days. Well, we're, we're so grateful to you. I know Lisa and I, I just realized today that you founded NEIC literally the same year that I came down to Atlanta to attend chiropractic college. And so we didn't know each other or you didn't know me at that time. I certainly learned of you quickly because our tribe uh, was wanting to know. We didn't know. I mean, I was a kid. I was 19 years old. I didn't even know that there were vaccine injuries. I had gotten vaccinated as a kid. And then I started meeting more and more and more parents of vaccine injured, uh, you know, with vaccine injured kids who were distraught and didn't know what to do. They weren't being supported. They were being pushed aside. They were being marginalized. They were being censored. And, you know, they were being forced to vaccinate. They didn't know that they had a choice. They didn't know that they could make a different decision. They didn't want to let their pediatrician down. The pediatricians were pushing it on them, not even close to like they are today, which we'll get into today. And, and how, you know, that was 40 years ago, Barbara, 40 years ago, and you are still going why? <laughs> well, you know, when my son had had a reaction, a very serious reaction to his fourth DPT shot in 1980, the fall of 1980. And uh, it, that was when I saw DPT vaccine roulette in the spring of 1982, about 18 months later, I realized what had happened to him. I didn't understand what, what had happened to Chris, he regressed physically, mentally, and emotionally over the course of 18 months. And I didn't connect it to the reaction that I actually witnessed him having. And I didn't understand that that was a reaction. I didn't understand that when I saw his eyes roll back in his head and his head fall to his shoulder and it, when he laid in his bed for hours, I didn't understand that was a post-pertussis vaccine convulsion, a collapse shock. Uh, 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 he was basically unconscious, you know, when he slept for hours and hours I didn't connect. I thought he was getting 
coming down with something. You know, I didn't I didn't connect the fact that he'd had a local reaction after his uh, third DPT shot as as important. If parents were given no information back then about vaccine reactions, how to identify them, how to protect their children against having another vaccine reaction by recognizing that they already had a vaccine reaction, there was no information. And when I saw that show in the spring of 1982 and reached out to the station and, and was con got together with uh, my co-founders of, of this, well, we called ourselves Dissatisfied Parents Together back then, uh, DPT, because the first thing we wanted was a safer pertussis vaccine. Uh, but we also wanted uh, informed consent protections. We wanted safety provisions in that 1986 law, which we did get in, including theirs. The Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System is part of that 86 law. Uh, we went to the table of good faith with government and with the medical organizations and everything to try to create a vaccine safety system in this country. Um, and unfortunately, when that law was passed, it's, it was a very different law than what is today. Uh, and so I watched the, that betrayal. I watched the same uh, congressmen and senators who had, had, had supported the law go in and, and put amendments on that law to gut the law. I saw the Department of Health and Human Services and Justice gut the law through rulemaking authority. I saw the U.S. Supreme Court in 2011 take away all remaining liability from the vaccine companies. Um, it was uh, it was that it, it's been the experience of having tried to do the right thing and being punished for it, basically being betrayed and punished for it. And when I use the word punished because. Uh, the, I've recently re, uh, released a report this uh, in November, uh, this this month. Uh, that is a I took three months to write. I, I, I in August I decided to sequester myself to the extent that I could, and do a deep dive into not only the medical literature but the mainstream media, into the government documents, and find out who was responsible for taking MVIC out of the public square in 2021 when we were deplatformed by all four social media platforms. We were deplatformed by, by uh, Facebook in, on March 3rd of 2021, followed by Instagram, followed by Twitter. And in September of 2021, all of my video, archi all of my video commentaries archived on YouTube were taken, were, were summarily without warning taken off, which our account shut. And uh, then in December 23rd, in the evening of December 23rd, 2021, uh, we were notified that no donations will be processed to MVIC through PayPal, which was the processor for Network for Good, which we had a contract with to, to do process donations that they had contracted with PayPal. And I didn't understand, there was no explanation given. It was sudden, sudden our, our fundraising campaign, we're in the middle of our end of year fundraising campaign. So we were demonetized. Well, I, I, you know, I grappled with 2020, 2021, 2022, responding to this pandemic, these emergency declaration that shut everything down. We had our hands full. We knew we were being suppressed, but I just somehow this year, I thought, I want to understand what happened. Who did it? Who exactly did it? And so I wrote an 80 page report, which has 420, uh, over 420 live linked references. And I submitted it to the US Judiciary Subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. Because what I found out was outrageous. I found that the same people, the agent, I had, I had spent more than 20 years 
as a consumer member of vaccine advisory committees at the request of the Department of Health and Human Services. At the request of the, vac- of the National Academy of Sciences, I sat for four years on a vaccine safety forum as a consumer representative. I spent hours and hours at those meetings and making presentations, begging them to do the science that would identify high-risk factors, genetic, epigenetic, uh, and environmental and other biological factors that made some people more susceptible to having a vaccine reaction than others so that doctors had screening tools to screen people out. I also, of course, argued consistently for the the, uh, protection of the informed consent principle in vaccine policy and law. Testified in Congress, testified in legislators, legislatures actually allowed us to do in the, in the way they set this government up at the federal, state, and local level. I participated in it as a good citizen, trying to change things from within. And what was I rewarded with? <laughs> I was rewarded by being vilified, demonized, discredited, you know, especially as soon as this pandemic was declared. And MVIC was targeted for elimination from the World Wide Web, and they did it. And so I decided I was going to write this report and 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 document exactly what happened and who did it. And and what I found was that at the very highest levels of government, not just the Department of Health and Human Services, but the Department of Homeland Security, and the CIA, and the FBI, and the Department of Defense. And all these agencies collaborated with the corporations that basically, not only the pharmaceutical corporations, but big tech and foreign political operatives like Imran Ahmed, the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which was founded in England, and uh, the universities, major universities like Johns Hopkins and Emory and University of Pennsylvania, and all these universities where these professors are demonizing me and other parents of vaccinated children for speaking out about what happened to their children. Um, And so, and it wasn't just national, it was international. You're talking World Health Organization, United Nations, World Bank, Rockefeller, all the philanthropies, the big philanthropies like Bloomberg Philanthropy, uh, the uh, Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates Foundation. This This was an international and national infrastructure that poured their resources into silencing anybody who dissented or who articulated, uh, criticized government vaccine policy and law, public health policy and law. And it's a first amendment right issue. It it, it couldn't be any clearer. I mean, I lived through the McCarthy era. I, I I was a child, but I remember Edward R. Murrow facing down McCarthy. I, I remember the blackballing of people in Hollywood and others in, in journalism, et cetera. This is far worse. This was far worse because it was not just national, it was international and involved the wealthiest institutions, the most powerful institutions in the world. So, well, Barbara, let me ask you um, because it, it, it's what I really appreciate about you is, is your efforts are deep coming from deep within um you are uh you're you're courageous in so many ways and you're you are a caring compassionate parent turned protector advocate of 
human rights and informed consent and against this gargantuan system, which, and I, and I have to say, as a person who chose to raise, Lisa and I choosing to raise our kids with natural immunity, um, growing up healthy, and we were surrounded, literally surrounded by ridicule on the ground locally in our community, but also sickness, um, illness, autoimmune diseases, and um, uh, autism, spectrum disorders, and just so many different brain tumors and diabetes that just exploded on the scenes. And, you know, and, and as time goes on and we see those things getting worse and worse and worse and more ubiquitous to the point where it's so common that it's been normalized. People don't even know what normal is as it relates to children. And yet we have all of these agencies with all of this money trying to censor the voices that are looking to protect not even to eliminate their agenda necessarily, but just to have choice and Absolutely. just to be informed about truth and real science and data, which has not been done, we have learned. Why is that happening? What, what are they afraid of? Uh, they're afraid of the truth. <laughs> you know, when I, when, when I sat on those committees and when I was at the Institute of Medicine, I made presentations. I can, I can go back. I'm going to be in the process of, of, of really going back and, resurrecting some of these old presentations and to show I'm actually finishing up a book called on vaccination and liberty uh showing the uh, the fact that this discussion has been going on for decades and the people have been asking those who are in charge of the mass vaccination system to do the right thing to do the science to at least care about these children who are more vulnerable to having vaccine reactions and you're right. I've always taken a very centrist informed consent stance. That is, I believe that vaccines should float free in the marketplace like any other product in a free enterprise system and be subject to the law of supply and demand. Uh, they should not in any way be mandated to be used by government. Government should not be in the business of being an ad agency for the pharmaceutical industry. And that's what they are. They're not just an ad agency, but they're an enforcer of the use of the product that is, oh, by the way, at this point, liability free. Nobody in the mass vaccination system is accountable in a court of law under most circumstances. Uh, nobody who, who makes the vaccine profits from it, promotes it, licenses it, makes policy for it, votes to mandate for it, gives it. Nobody is responsible when someone has a vaccine reaction that results in an injury or death. And yet it's mandated. I mean, this is, we have completely set ourselves up for exploitation as a population, not just in this country, but around the world. And it played out, didn't it? It absolutely played out in 2021 and 2022. When the, when the, the, the pandemic response included isolation in your home, masking, you couldn't go out then when the vaccine came on the market, you were supposed to get vaccinated. Or if you were in a corporation of more than 100 people in this country, you, you could have your job taken from you if you didn't get the COVID shot. In the federal government, if you were even a contractor with the federal government, you could you had to have the shot. The military had to have the shot. The healthcare workers had to have the shot. 80% of the people in this country rolled up their sleeves and got at least one COVID shot by the way, a biological product that is not a vaccine in the traditional sense, it is a completely different than anything we've ever used. 
It was fast-tracked to licensure. It is it is filed now with the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, more than 1.5 million adverse events. It is the most reactive vaccine that has ever been used, including smallpox and, and pertussis vaccine, I think. And we don't even have an idea of what the, what the long-term effects of 80% of the people in this country having gotten a cell disruptor biological product that basically is a it creates a, the body creates a synthetic protein. I mean, it's disgusting. What happened? Why did it happen? It happened because they because nobody they ignored what we were saying. They blew us off. They blew me off. And I told them, I begged them to do the science. And I said, if you don't do the science, if you continue to adopt a utilitarian rationale that some people can be sacrificed for the rest you're going to eventually lose the trust of the people. They are not going to trust you anymore because when a parent comes in with their child to a doctor, that parent is trusting that doctor to the, do the best thing for their child. They don't expect the doctor to be an implementer of public, uh, of a mandatory public policy. They don't, they expect the doctor to be care about that child, but that's not what's happening. So, I mean, we see, and one of the questions that I have, it, it really is frustrating, and we see a lot of MDs as, as patients, you know, periodically they'll come in, we have some randomly, and then we have some that come in more consistently for chiropractic care. And, you know, I asked the question, so do you see that this is happening? And why do you comply? And I've never gotten an answer because it it is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. We see more vaccine injured people. I was talking to one of our, uh, we, we train a lot of chiropractors around the world. And we obviously with our 100 year lifestyle, we, we educate people how to live healthy, drug free lives functioning at their highest level for a lifetime. And, you know, we see these people that are injured. We say, don't you see them? Don't you see them? Do you ask why? Do you challenge it? Or, you, you know, what is your stance? And there's, it's silence. Why? Well, I, I do believe, I, I figured out very early on when Harris Coulter and I, Dr. Coulter and I were doing research for DPT, A Shot in the Dark, uh, two and a half years of research. That book was published in 1985 by Harker Brace Ivanovich, which at the time was a medical book publisher, as well as a fiction and a nonfiction publisher. Um, there was a, a, a Dr. Ehrengut, Wolfgang Ehrengut, who was an early whistleblower on the wholesale pertussis vaccine and DPT. He believed it was a dangerous vaccine and it needed to be improved. And he wrote an article and in that he said, when it comes to the mentality among doctors uh, regarding vaccines, and especially DPT, the prevailing mentality is what must not be cannot be. And, you know, I've always said that doctors, you know, most people become doctors because they want to help people. They don't go into the, they don't become a doctor because they want to hurt people. And so I do believe that there has been a psychological disincentive and an emotional disincentive and an intellectual disincentive. And a financial one. And, and a financial one as well. But if you want to take away the financial and just leave it as a human being in terms of becoming a physician, Unless you think that physicians basically become physicians because they want to make money, I I don't think that's that's true. Actually, I think people go into healthcare work because they want to help people. But I think that they're brainwashed in 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 medical school. Medical school is very much 
mentorship and you you need to adopt the values and belief system of your mentors. And you and there's not a lot of independent thinking. It's kind of like when you join the military, you know, you do take orders. I mean, you agree to take orders. You get, agree to take, give up certain rights, actually, in order to, to obey orders in the military. And and I see that the same thing in the in these medical uh, schools. You know, one of the earliest things we did when we when we demonstrated in front of the CDC in May of 1986, it was the first public demonstration ever held in front of the CDC. And we our theme of the march was you don't know how many are being hurt. You don't know how many. And when I went into that, we, we were allowed to make a presentation to the ACIP committee that day after the march. And I basically said, where are your, where are your pathological profiles to give to coroners to separate out what is and is not a vaccine death? How do you make a distinction about what is and is not a death caused by a vaccine? Well, there was nothing. There still is nothing. There still is nothing, which is why you see so many of these deaths being written off as, you know, unexplained infant deaths, sudden infant death, whatever, because they still don't have pathological profiles to separate out what is. And it's the same thing with these vaccine reactions. They doctors have been taught to believe it's just a coincidence. It's just a temporal association that has nothing to do with causal association. So they tell the mother who's saying, but I saw my child do this and this and this. And they say, but that that doesn't cause a, a brain inflammation, brain damage, autism, learning disabilities, ADD, asthma. You know, uh, there's this, I had this, I, I wrote a something you can get on nbic.org and download. It's called Reforming Vaccine Policy and Law, a Guide. And in there, I talk about the Institute of Medicine reports that were published as a requirement under the 1986 Act, actually. We got this in, that the Institute of Medicine would have to look at the medical literature and other evidence that vaccines can cause injury and death. And between 1991 and 2013, the Institute of Medicine did publish studies that were uh, written by expert or physician committees that they had assembled on looking at, well, what is the evidence? And their last report in 2013 was about the childhood vaccine schedule between newborn and six years of age. And they they concluded, this committee concluded that that early childhood schedule had not been adequately studied for safety. That the individual vaccines had been studied, but not the combination of giving all those vaccines from birth to age six and then they listed all of the disorders. I had this book here and I should have written out. Hold on one second. Because they listed all of the disorders that were that they they could not decide whether those disorders were or was were not connected to I don't know where it is, to the vaccine injury. And they were things like autism, learning disabilities, communication disorders, asthma epilepsy, a, a whole list of, of chronic diseases and disabilities that they could not say either were or were not causally related to that early childhood schedule. Now, how many people know that, right? That's the National Academy of Sciences. So the jury is definitely still out on whether or not this 
exploding vaccine schedule that I've witnessed in the last 40 years, because when my children were given seven vaccines, oral polio, dysperia, pertussis, tetanus, DPT, and MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella. 23 doses of seven vaccines are what my kids got in the late late 70s, early 80s. Children today get uh, 72 doses of 17 vaccines between day of birth and age 18 with 52 doses given before the age of six. This is an entirely different way of experiencing early childhood when it comes to immune system and brain development because the immune system and the brain are connected. And, you know, there is, they, they, they have not done the studies to show that it is a, 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 an improvement. It, it improves the child's health to have all this atypical manipulation of the immune system over and over again with all of these vaccines that now are being genetically engineered. The first genetically engineered, true genetically engineered vaccine was the virus-like protein particle uh, it was the uh, hepatitis B vaccine that instead of targeting the high-risk groups that they should have, because we had a very low incidence of hepatitis B when that vaccine uh, uh, came in, that genetically engineered vaccine, very low incidence of hepatitis B in this country, unlike in Asia where it's endemic. We had less than one half of 1% of mothers being infected with hepatitis B, so their children were at risk. Instead of, instead of targeting the high-risk groups, the IV drug users, persons with multiple sexual partners, et cetera, they went for this little, these little babies in the newborn nursery at 12 hours of age. Little babies, when you know nothing about the immune function of that baby, you know nothing about really about the health of that baby at 12 hours of age. The, the, the reason the system is so, has run amok, not only with the numbers of vaccines they've added to the childhood schedule, but it, it, it's this idea that anything bad that happens after vaccination is not connected to vaccination. It's been a prescription for disaster for our children. The most, the sickest, most disabled child population in the history of our country. Yeah, you and you know, it's interesting, and it, it is. And I, the more we talk about it, the more this conversation is going to heat up because it's it's so uh, it's. It's just terrible what's happening. And one thing that happened just recently, a couple of years ago, the one of the pediatric associations pushed back the markers. And I don't have that in front of me. But for example, let's say if they were supposed to crawl at six months, they pushed it back to a year and a half. If they were supposed to talk, it, they just pushed all the markers back instead of saying, okay, why are, why are, are all these children developing more slowly than they used to? Why are they having more brain injuries? They actually pushed back the markers so that you wouldn't be able to tell that there was any problem if you looked at the statistics. And, you know, there's something interesting in, in my work that's been very intriguing. You know, life expectancy, I think everybody knows by now, life expectancy has declined to its and dropped by, to its lowest level since World War II, or dropped by the most amount since World War II. And people ask me, well, Dr. Flashko, why is that statistic relevant? Well, what happened in World War II? Well, World War II, you had a world war and a Holocaust. You had lots and lots and lots of young people dying. And so the life expectancy went down. And it's not because the older people are dying. That's not why life expectancy drops. It's because the younger people are dying. And the increase in the death rates 
of the one to four-year-old population, the 35 to 45-year-old population, the 45 to 55-year-old population. These are bringing life expectancy down while the number of people that are living at age 65, the life expectancy has only dropped by 0.1 year. It hasn't affected the older generation statistically like it has the younger generations. And people will say, well, how could it be that? Does it, are there less 100-year-old people? No, that number is still going up. And this is the unvaccinated control group during their formative years. And we're seeing this. You, you are absolutely right. Uh, you know, those of us, uh, when I was a child, I did have the smallpox vaccine, which was a, probably second to the COVID vaccine, a very reactive vaccine. I did not have a reaction. I have a scar on my thigh still, uh, the, the telltale smallpox scar. Um, uh, I only got a couple of doses. I think I had one dose of DPT vaccine. No, I had measles. I had rubella. I had chickenpox. I had whooping cough, you know, as an adult, because that vaccine, the whole cell vaccine was notoriously ineffective. They just covered it up. When I did a shot in the dark, shot in the dark, I found out how ineffective that whole cell vaccine was. It did not interrupt infection and transmission. The, the acellular vaccine also does not interrupt infection and transmission, uh, but it causes less encephalopathies. You still can have brain damage with with a with the acellular vaccine that we worked for 14 years to get in here for the American babies, but but it it, it doesn't do it as much as the whole cell vaccine did. Um, so. You know, those of us who are older, who who acquired natural immunity uh, that is more robust and longer lasting than the vaccine acquired immunity, uh, our immune systems were allowed to develop in a normal way. Uh, and these little children, they're not. And then the great, oh, the thing that just makes me so upset is this vaccination of pregnant women. When that started in earnest around in the mid mid part of the first decade of this century, 21st century. Uh, I, I just, I, I could not believe it. I wrote a, a commentary about this policy of injecting these pregnant women with TDAP vaccine and also influenza vaccine. And you know, that again, you're, you're causing inflammation in the body. What do vaccines do? They have to cause an inflammatory response in the body. And depending upon the vaccine and the ingredients in the vaccine, you're going to have some people already are genetically predisposed to not being resolved, able to resolve inflammation. People who have histories of autoimmunity in their family, who have histories of severe allergies in their family, really need to be careful. You really need to look at this because uh, the inflammatory response that's caused by a vaccination sometimes does not resolve. And if it goes on to become chronic and a chronic inflammatory response, it can take the form of different types of chronic diseases and disabilities. It can take, in, in the COVID vaccine, we've seen heart inflammation. The government has acknowledged that these mRNA vaccines are causally associated with myocarditis, pericarditis, heart inflammation. That can become chronic. Same, unfortunately, is true with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. I actually was left with AFib after my, I've had three bouts with COVID and I was left with AFib after my first bout with COVID, a bioweapon virus came out of the lab in China with US funding. And I don't, I, you know, the one thing I have to say is, you know, 
these infections are not risk-free either. But, but the vaccine, neither the vaccine or the infection are risk-free. It just depends upon your genetics, epigenetics, your state of health. You promote a healthy lifestyle. It's so important to understand your medical and family history, to understand what's going on in your own body, to, to understand whether you are vulnerable to not resolving inflammatory responses. I don't resolve inflammatory responses well. That's why I had a hard time with the three bouts of COVID I had. I, I mount hyper-inflammatory responses that take a long time to resolve. So I don't get sick often, but when I get sick, I get real sick. Well, so and, we're all different. Yeah, we are all different. And, and that's why, you know, we have, for those of you that uh, don't know anything about what we're doing on 100yearlifestyle.com, we have been giving away an ebook called Becoming a Least Vulnerable Person uh, for Free. So if you go to 100yearlifestyle.com, uh, there's information about MBIC and, and, and Barbara in what the work that you're doing in that ebook. I think you have also distributed it. Uh, uh, at different points and uh, because we have to get the word out. And, you know, I always go back from an immune system perspective and then uh, and then I want to circle back to your report. Um, but from an immune system perspective and a chiropractic perspective, D.D. Palmer, his original question is more true today than it has ever been in the history of the world. When he asked the question, I wanted to know why two people eating at the same, eating the same food, sitting at the same table, breathing the same, same air, taking the same vaccine, whatever it is, why one gets sick, one doesn't get sick. And the nervous system is such an important part of that. So to my colleagues that are on the line, your work getting to as many people as possible has never been more important. Your education in the community has never been more important. And, uh, and so please, if you don't have that ebook, download it, distribute it, and, uh, and also make a donation to to NVIC. We're going to make a donation to NVIC. I want everybody on the line. They need to stay in existence. They need to stay strong. They are doing the hard work for all of us. And could you imagine, Barbara, what the world would be like if we could have conversations like this with everybody on every side, if we could just talk about it? Yes. But we yes. can't because you're, they're censoring you and you caught them. You found out with over 400 references. Tell us some more about this ridiculous censorship industrial complex that you have found out, because I'll tell you what is frustrating for me and a lot of our doctors and our, our patients and our practice members and advocates. We used uh, to say, do your homework, do the research. You can't anymore. It's censored. That, indeed. They don't want you to do the research. In fact, they say that doing the research is detrimental to you. You just need to follow <laughs> what the authorities say. Uh, there's a definitely an assault. It's I call it the, I, I call the vaccine culture war, because the vaccine culture war is part of a larger culture war that's going on in, in all over the world, but particularly in this country. And it has to do with whether or not the individual has rights which limit the power of the state. Do we have the natural right, the right given to us by God to, to autonomy, to protection of bodily integrity and that of our child? Or does the state have the right to take that from us and tell us what we have to do with our bodies and the bodies of our minor children. So this is really the crux of the whole thing. That's what we're fighting for. We are fighting literally for the right to have dominion over our own bodies and, and be able to protect our children. I get adjusted every two weeks. I, I, I am a big believer in chiropractic. I'm a big believer in holistic, the type of holistic healthcare options that you're putting out there, this 
idea that you have to lead as healthy a lifestyle as possible to compensate for some of the vulnerabilities you were born with, you know, genetically, epigenetically, you know, we're all influenced by different things, different environmental toxins, different uh, histories in our family, different lifestyles that we've led. So, you know, I, I just, I, I applaud the work that you're doing. Uh, as far as my report is is concerned, uh, I'm going to be, what I'm going to be doing, I was on a deadline. We were doing Vaccine Awareness Week, which we we did it for the 14th year. We co-sponsored with Dr. Joseph Mercola. And, uh, and so I was on a deadline to get this report written, referenced, and, and released in the first week in, on November 1st, actually. And I, at the same time, I, I, I sent it to the, uh, the, the sub select subcommittee at the judiciary on the weaponization of the federal government. They've done some amazing work. You should take a look at that website and see some of the reports that have come out of that committee. Um, but I, I will be, I will be augmenting this, this information and putting it out in an ebook form. And I'll let you know when that ebook is ready so that you can make your followers aware of it. Cause it'll, I, I would, I'd like to illustrate it a little bit and put some charts and graphs and things in. Uh, but I, 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 I really feel it's a very important report in that it, it connects the dots for people. Anybody who's wondering, well, how did they really, why did the personal belief exemption get taken away in California? Who was involved in that? Well, I went ahead and I found out who was involved in that. And I, I referenced it. You know, again, we're talking about big universities, big philanthropy, the Aspen Institute out of Colorado, the Sabin Vaccine Institute, uh, the, uh, the Gavi, that, uh, the, the Vaccine Alliance that represents all of the vaccine manufacturers. Um, the uh, World Economic Forum, which was headed is headed by Carl Schwab, uh, a, a very big proponent of this great reset, this idea that the state and state authorities like the in, in this world government they're trying to create at the United Nations, uh, because they don't want countries to have individual sovereignty. They want everybody to march to the same drummer. There is so much information in this report and the 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 references are a library. I mean, the references are a whole other deep dive. I couldn't put everything in the text. And there are I, links, right, in your report. There are links they're to linked. these references. They're live links. So all you have to do, if you, if you, when you're reading the report, and I've, I've bolded certain words and stuff to help you get through the report. Say you want to, say you want to learn more about the National Network of Immunization Coalitions. Uh, you know, you can look at the reference there and go down and click on it and learn more about all of these entities that I've I've described in here as being part of this collaborative effort to silence the public conversation about vaccination, health, and autonomy. That is really what is going on here. And of course, that includes any, any healthcare professional, like doctors of chiropractic, who are who see achieving health in a different way rather than lying exclusively on the pharmaceutical model, the, 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 the drugs and the vaccines, surgery, et cetera, uh, as the only way to stay healthy. It includes everyone who, who wants to be free to decide how to stay healthy. I think we have an educated audience right now. 
uh, in our initial audience. Hopefully this will reach uh, more and more and more people. I will let everybody know who was on this call where you can get it. We're gonna probably put it in our vault um, because then it can't be taken down or removed. Uh, you'll need a login to get it. We may put it on some of these other stations and channels that that are protected more so from you know with free speech. So here we have a lot of caring, compassionate people going to see this, Barbara. And and a lot of these nonprofits that you're talking about have been captured. Uh, they are owned by the people. They they use humanitarianism to market the most unhumanitarian efforts in history. Uh, and it's it's just it's we just need to be aware and wake up. So what can the average person do? Because it seems so overwhelming sometimes. What do you suggest for people? I mean, I tell people to call you and get involved at NVIC and to these other nonprofits that you can trust that are truly trustworthy, that are driven by leadership, that are doing the hard work. Um, what do you suggest to parents well, and to advocates who want to get involved? I really, you know, in 2010, we launched the NVIC advocacy portal at nvicadvocacy.org. This is a communications and advocacy tool. It's free. You register because what we do is we send you emails when vaccine-related bills are moving in your own state. You don't get everybody's state information. You get your own state information. It also has the contact information for your legislators. So you're able to, with one click, get in touch with your legislator. Make an appointment to go see your legislator when he's in the when he or she are in the uh, uh, local office. It's it's getting involved at the local and state level that really makes the difference because vaccine laws are state laws in the United States. Because we organized in 2010, and we had done work prior to that, but we really organized in 2010, and Dawn Richardson came in from Texas. She had had a, I had worked with Dawn in, in the late 90s and early 2000s to get a conscientious belief vaccine exemption in the state of Texas took seven years, but we did it. Uh, and she came in in 2010 and created this portal. Because we had been on the ground in the States, working with chiropractors, working with other organizations, working with families, we were able to prevent a COVID vaccine mandate in this country for children to attend school across every state. They tried, the vaccine lobby tried, but because we'd educated the legislators on the importance of informed consent, and because it became very obvious that this vaccine was highly reactive, no state voted to mandate this vaccine for children. That's a historic accomplishment. We can build on that. We need an army. We need people to get involved. Please sign up for the portal. Please get involved at the state level, particularly, because that's where the rubber meets the road. Anything not defined in the Constitution as, as a federal activity defaults to the states. Public health, by and large, is state within the borders of the state. The only thing the feds are, are, in, are in charge of is coming across the borders of the United States or interstate commerce between borders of states. Now, they could have pulled that trigger in, in 2021 if they wanted to. They didn't. They could have said, you know what, if you're not vaccinated, you can't cross over this, this state board, but they didn't do that because they knew they were already having trouble with what they were trying to do. They were trying to get the feds involved in overriding state law to mandate that this vaccine be used. 
like for the corporations. And the corporations cooperated. So, you know, I, I think that when they try this again, and they won't, I mean, they're going to try, this agenda is a worldwide long-term agenda. They're, the, the, those, our adversaries are not going to stop. They're going to continue to come back with new events and new restrictions. But I believe awakening has occurred. People are talking about this issue internationally for the first time in a far different way because of that COVID vaccine. It didn't work. They knew it didn't work. You All you have to do is look at the FDA documents. The FDA required the vaccine manufacturers to produce a product that had at least 50% efficacy of limiting the severity of COVID disease symptoms, not preventing infection and transmission, just simply preventing a serious case of the disease. That's a whole different standard than ever has been applied to a vaccine. I mean, this is a product that's labeled a vaccine. Okay, it's not a vaccine, but the product labeled as a vaccine. So we have an opportunity now to build on this awareness. Only 15% of adults in this country have gotten a COVID vaccine booster, the latest booster, and less than 5% of children have. That is awareness. That yeah, is pushing. And I don't think you can get them to ever take another one without thinking twice and asking all the questions that would get them thrown out of a, an office that was trying to sell or push those shots on, on the patients. And, you know, it's interesting because I also think we're winning. I think that we have so much momentum, but we we really have to be vigilant. We have to put our uh, feet to the fire on this. We cannot wait. You know, I, I often will say nobody that is in this battle chose it initially. This battle wow. chose them because they did what the doctor told them to do. They did what the CDC told them to do. They did what the FDA and all these agencies told them to do. And then when they were harmed, they were abandoned. Yes. Yes. Nobody wants to be part of this club. No. I can tell you that. And but we and, and if you're not part of this club, I you mean probably the know people club. that are a part of this club. And, and, you know, we call it a club and it's a shame. I mean, I know people who have uh, their uh, miscarriages, yes. stillbirths, yes. Um, just horrible heart attacks in front of their 10-year-old son while driving a fancy car. I mean, the stories that we see, we had a massage therapist, typically healthy person, came in after the first shot, then the set, she's 60 years old literally holding her chest like she was having a heart attack literally within hours after getting uh, a shot. And, you know, it, enough is enough. And so we, we have all been touched on some level. And, you know, Barbara, I just got to say, I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to have some closing thoughts here, but I really appreciate you. You're, you're just a hero to me, uh, to Lisa, to our family. You have saved us and so many of the people that we've been able to touch through our practices. I mean, we've worked with thousands of offices around the world, helping them understand how to help raise healthy drug-free families. Your reach is just extraordinary. And we we love you. Uh, we appreciate you. We wish we could do more. We, we, you know, and everybody on the line, I think the more you get into this battle, you're going to realize how important NVIC is to your family, to your community, to your state, uh, and literally to this country and to the world. So donate to MVIC, get involved with the portal. And Barbara, I'm going to let you wrap it up. Well, I thank you for the opportunity to talk to your audience. Um, I think it's 
I agree with you. This is this is a moment that we all can share and that we all can build on because they've made a big mistake. They overreached. Uh, too fast. They, they went one step too far. Uh, I always knew they would, but I didn't know when. And that moment is now. And we now have an opportunity to continue to raise the consciousness of the people, not just in this country, but around the world. But in this country, this is what we have you know, control over. And to me, it's about protecting the natural right to autonomy, to protection of bodily integrity. And we can do that legally by making sure that these laws that govern us at the state and local level, uh, federal is harder, but at least at the state and local level are, are laws that we agree with. That means we have to elect people who have integrity, who understand this issue. It's why these conversations that happen in a private setting that you have with your family, even if you get pushback, that you have with your doctor, that you have with your, your community leaders are so important to raise their consciousness so that when things like a pandemic health emergency is declared, they have background and they can see what's happening and they can respond appropriately. Let's face it, there's 8 billion people in the world. There's 333 million people in this country. The people who are pulling these strings are a very, very tiny group, very small group. We've given them that power. We need to take it back. And I think we can. And you named names. I'm sorry? And you named names. I did. In your report. I did. And I feel liberated doing it. Well, God bless you. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, uh, everybody, thank you again. Standing ovation for you, Barbara. We appreciate you so much. Come on, everybody. NVIC.org. NVIC Advocacy.org. Is that right? That's right. Um, get involved. Sign up. Get their newsletters. They're fantastic. Make a donation, whatever you can. Spread the word. Be on the lookout for emails on where you can watch this uh, over and over again and share it with friends and family. Barbara, next time, I can't wait to see you. Hopefully soon, give you a big hug and thank you in person for all the amazing work that you're doing. God bless you, Dr. Plaster. Thank you so much for joining us on the 100 Year Lifestyle Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have topics that you want us to cover, people you want us to interview, maybe you have some stories that you want to share, stories of yourself, loved ones, people in your life, we would love to hear from you and share your story. Please email us at my100 at 100yearlifestyle.com. And remember, nobody wants to get to 100 or even 50, 60, or 70 for that matter, crippled, broken, alone. So please share the 100 Year Lifestyle, all of our podcasts, social media pages, website, with your family, friends, and coworkers so they can take this journey with you. And until next time, adjust your lifestyle. Live your best life today and every day on the road to a sensational century. Dr. Plasker, signing off.